0: I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, how can confronting death and embracing grief help us lead fuller lives? I'll talk with well-known Los Angeles rabbi Steve Leader about the pandemic, end-of-life care, and his own struggle coping with the death of his father.
1: Making room to grieve as a son has made me a far better rabbi. And by the way, I don't want this to sound in any way like I made some kind of intelligent or heroic choice to grieve as the son. I had no choice. This is the thing about death. Death is in
0: charge. In a remarkably candid interview, Rabbi Leder also shares his thoughts on how we can build on what we collectively went through in 2020.
1: If you have to go through hell, don't come out empty-handed. That's my wish for everyone in the new year. Take what you have learned and use it to make your life more meaningful and more beautiful.
0: Lessons and a whole lot of inspiration from Rabbi Leader, all ahead on Life Examined. Los Angeles Rabbi Steve Leder is on a mission, to fully embrace the most natural part of life, death. When it comes to death and grieving in America, Leder says it's kept at arm's length, In his upcoming book called The Beauty of What Remains, How Our Greatest Fear Becomes Our Greatest Gift, Rabbi Leder reflects on how we collectively grieve and deal with death. Though most Americans say they want to die at home, 80% of them do not. Rabbi Leder freely admits not knowing how to deal with the loss of his father, but reflects on how the experience made him a better rabbi and revealed a profound depth of love. Personally, I wanted to end 2020 with this conversation, because I think all of us have lost something this year. It might be a person, a career, or all the small freedoms we took for granted. It wasn't easy. But as the rabbi will tell us, there is a lot to be learned from our losses. And if we're lucky, we might even carry some of those insights with us into 2021. Rabbi Steve Leder, it is such a pleasure to have you on for the full hour of Life Examined. Welcome.
1: It's my honor. I'm, I really am honored to be with you today.
0: You know, uh, this is the last show of of 2020 for Life Examined, and, and perhaps we could each take a breath here and say, what what a year this has been. It's hard to even know where to begin when we think about it. But but as you sit here kind of holding this energy of of a wild, wild year, what, What comes to your mind?
1: Optimism. Hmm. Uh, I am daily, multiple times amazed at the ingenuity, resilience, uh, creativity, ability, faith, hope, caring that I am witness to and have the opportunity to be a part of. Obviously, there have been many mistakes made in managing uh, this pandemic but in so many very powerful ways, it has revealed the strength within us. Uh, for me, it has revealed yet again, I've fallen in love one more time with the wisdom of the ancient sages who fought through every aspect of the human condition with real depth and clarity. Um, I, I think it's been an epic and amazing time to be alive, uh, and that is not for a moment to dismiss the awful pain and suffering that has come with this pandemic. Um, so, you know, not for a moment am I here to tell you that it's worth the things I've just described. But I am here to tell you, neither is it worthless. I mean, this has this has been a very rare and extraordinary opportunity for all of us uh, to lead and to and to examine who we really are.
0: Yeah. I, I remember speaking once to, uh, to a Jewish leader who said, we, we've all almost been in Sabbath for an entire year. We've all been forced to look inwards uh, very unexpectedly in a way that perhaps we may we may never have to again. Do you think there's some truth to that?
1: Uh, there is. And I'll, I'll tell you, I see it in an even broader fashion. I, I see the Sabbath ultimately uh as being so much more about the negative commandments than the positive commandments. In other words, you know, there are thou shalts and thou shalt nots. And the Sabbath is laden with thou shalt nots. Very few thou shalts, lots of thou shalt nots. And what does that teach us? Why is the Sabbath such a beautiful and special day? Well, by the way, why did I call the book I've written that's coming out in in a few weeks, the beauty of what remains? really for the same reason. Let me explain. There's a theological concept called via negationis, by way of the negative. And uh, to make a complicated and long story very short, it's a way of saying that we can understand what God is by understanding first what God is not, by what we remove. Now, let's think about this in a broader but simpler context. Think for a moment about the most beautiful marble sculpture you've ever seen in your life. And think about how that sculpture began. It began as a solid block of marble. And the beauty of that sculpture was always within it, hiding in plain sight. But in order for it to be revealed, a lot had to be taken away. A lot had to be removed. It's creating by removing. Mm. The Sabbath is creating by ceasing to create. And this pandemic has shut down so much of our lives. And some of that is terrible and difficult, but it has also chipped away and stripped us down to a very beautiful essentialism, uh, to, to the simplest, most meaningful people and things in our lives, and hopefully a deeper sense of gratitude for the simplest and most meaningful things in our lives. I mean, we've all learned that it's not what, but who we have that matters. We've all learned that in this pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. So in this sense, I agree with that observation that taking away so much has revealed so much beauty that was hiding in plain sight all along.
0: And so much of that beauty, I feel, has been in relationships, relationships to one another, uh, understanding the fragility of them, uh, making sense of those that have been taken away, and also perhaps understanding the relationship to ourselves along the way.
1: Very true. I I can tell you that, uh, and I'm a fairly expressive person generally, I find myself saying I love you far more frequently than I did before uh, to my family and to my friends. And I, I can only say that it's another one of those things that was always there, but not fully expressed before. And the pandemic has brought that out in me. I I, end most of my conversations with family and friends now saying, I love you. I love you guys. Uh, And I mean it. So that's the external part, of course. Um, And internally, I think this has, you know, intensified who we are. There's an old joke, Heinrich Heine, uh, it's attributed to to Heinrich Heine, who said, uh, the Jews are like everyone else, just more so. I love that quote. <laughs> and and you know what? It, it could apply to lots of ethnicities and types of people, right? Uh, we all have our, our intensities. But so Heine said the Jew, the Jews are like everyone else, just more so. I think the pandemic has made us all more so. Uh, it has caused leaders to become even better leaders. It has caused caregiver, caregivers to become better caregivers. It has caused you know, partners to become better partners. And also, of course, the the other side, the dark side of that is, it has caused people who uh, suffer with isolation to become more isolated. It has caused the poor to become poorer. Uh, It has caused the sick to become sicker. So it has made everyone and everything more so. And that's just the truth. And sometimes that's a beautiful truth, and sometimes that's a painful truth. But it is always the truth.
0: What is the lesson in that? I mean, what, what do we take away from that? Because that is something I think I have felt so, so truly over the last nine months.
1: Well, ideally, it causes us to examine ourselves and lean into our best selves, ideally, you know. And, and uh, I have been helped so much in that by looking at models of leadership in the past. I think we all have. We've all been reading quotes on Instagram by Roosevelt and Churchill and, you know, on and on. Uh, and, of course, I go back to the depths of Jewish tradition and and look at those leadership models and those individuals. Um, and, you know, it guides me and inspires me to reach and to lead. Uh, you know, if you're the kind of person who wants the ball in his or her hands for that last shot, my goodness, what what an opportunity this pandemic has been for, for people like that. So I think, but ideally to get to your point of self-reflection, and, and here maybe this is transitioning to a far deeper subject than just the pandemic, I think that the very real threat and omnipresent threat of death in a way that we cannot repress as we normally do, has forced a lot of us, if not all of us, to examine our lives. Uh, the, the sages of the Talmud said, if you are visited by pain, examine your life. And they don't mean examine your life as in you've behaved in a way that warrants this pain. What they mean is, is that pain is an invitation to change your life. And, and this pandemic is an invitation for us as individuals, as cities, as states, as nations, as a global community, to change the way we live. I'm not naive that that most of life will go back to its default setting, but not everything has to go back to its default setting. And I cannot imagine anything other than the threat of death, Mm -hmm. the very real threat of death, that can lead to this level of introspection and change.
0: You know, yeah. it's 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 interesting. You mentioned this. W- one of the big themes we've talked about over this last year has been death, simply because of the things that you've mentioned. I mean, as as you and I have this conversation, we are we are grappling with the fact that three hundred thousand Americans have died over the last year, which is a staggering number, and. One, one part of the theme that's been of, of real interest to me is how, how Americans in particular, we, we have grown into a culture that has not really wanted to look death in the eye. We have sanitized death. We have pushed it into the corners. We pretend oftentimes that it doesn't exist. And my goodness, has this been a moment to reexamine our viewpoint as a culture?
1: Yes, we've been forced to. We've been forced to. This tiny microscopic virus looms very large. In life, And I do not think, and again, not for a moment am I dismissing the horror of what the world has been through and of those 300,000 deaths in our country. Not for a moment. That being said, it has forced us all to reckon with some very fundamental truths about life that can only be learned from taking death seriously. And that hopefully, will have an echo effect for the rest of our lives. The way those of us who grew up with parents or grandparents who were raised during the Depression saw that that, that had an echo effect in their lives, as some of it was negative, some of it was very positive. Um, so I, I do agree with you. We tend to tuck death away in a corner. You know, we put makeup and suits and ties and dresses on the dead to make them look less dead. Uh, you know, when someone dies, the body is whisked away. By the way, as much as uh, everyone says they'd like to die at home, about 80% of Americans do not die at home. So <clears throat> death is, is kept at arm's length, frankly. And uh, this has to some degree changed that. And I think that is better for people's lives. Again, despite the pain.
0: I know that death is a very important theme in in your new book and uh i think uh, my guess is not only have you been thinking about this on on the levels at which we're talking right now but also one on a very personal level uh which was which was grappling with the death of your father will you tell us a little bit about the the experience you underwent because i think it's a precious story for us to hear
1: well i uh, was a rabbi for 30 years before my father died, and during those 30 years, I really had done my best uh, to help people through this valley of shadows, as the poet puts it, uh, that we know of as death and, and mourning. And I thought I was doing a pretty good job. I would have given myself, you know, an A or an A minus. And then my father died after a 10-year battle with Alzheimer's. And what I learned through that experience indicated to me that despite my best efforts in the past, everything that I had been saying and teaching and doing to help people through death and through loss was, as I put it in the prologue, one degree shy of the deepest truth. Mm -hmm. And my father's death taught me in so many powerful ways about that final degree of truth that death comes to teach us about life. And I felt I had to write about it. So the book is in a sense, almost an apology for everything that I got sort of right in the past, but not exactly right. And it is also, and I think this is the most um, beautiful and challenging part of the book is there are two parallel stories in the book. A, it's a field guide for this journey through loss. But B, on a parallel track that sometimes intersects, it is the story of Steve Leader, the rabbi, becoming Steve Leader, the son, and the journey between those two realities that often in my life are completely aligned, but sometimes are not. Mm-hmm. And so there's this dichotomous tension between being the rabbi and and being my father's son. And the latter taught me so much about how to be better at the former. Mm -hmm. And the former gave me a little bit of buttressing as I faced the latter. Uh, But it it is a a sometimes beautiful, sometimes painful uh, dialogue between those two realities.
0: You know, and it makes me think, it makes me think of these different. Identities in roles that we inhabit and I imagine you here you are as a spiritual leader who's supposed to tend To death and to to sorrow and to have somewhat hope and understanding of it But where is the space for you also to be a son and grieve himself? Yes.
1: Yes. Well That really is The essence of that dichotomous tension that I talked about before Uh, and what I learned Mm -hmm was that making room to grieve as a son has made me a far better rabbi. Uh, And by the way, I don't want this to sound in any way like I made some kind of intelligent or heroic choice to grieve as the son. I had no choice. This is the thing about death. Death is in charge. We are not. And and i didn't really have a choice to grieve as a son any more than i have a choice to to breathe and be human uh right it 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 comes at us whether we like it or not and whether we want to deny it or not the question was was i willing to go on the journey or or was i going to you know stand up against it uh, i i often tell people that that anyone who thinks the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, doesn't understand grief, you know, mm-hmm. that, that grief is nonlinear. And, and by the way, you know, there's been a lot of talk since Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and others about stages of grief. I actually don't buy it. I don't, I don't see it that way. I think it's much more like waves that ebb and flow and like a tide that ebbs and flows. And the waves, the waves get further apart and sometimes smaller but it is also true that you can get utterly smashed by a rogue wave when your back is turned and you least expect it. And it throws you upside down, thrashes you, and you're gasping for air. That's, that is also grief. Uh, it, it comes and it goes. And so I didn't really have a choice about that. My choice was to either stand up against it or... Just like, the, to extend this wave metaphor, uh, any of us who live in California understand that when there's a huge wave coming at you, it's much better to sort of lie down and float with it and then stand up again when you can. And, yeah. and that, too, is grief. You, you have to float with it and then stand when you're able to stand again. Making peace with that is such a beautiful way of also making peace with loss and making peace with the memory of one you loved. And and at some point we can talk about the duality of memory too, which is another thing I learned through Alzheimer's and my father's death. Mm-hmm.
0: I don't think any of our listeners know that when I'm not here, I, I work as a grief counselor at the hospice of Santa Barbara. And so this, this question is very, very dear to me. And what I see in my clients is exactly what you describe which is a series of waves which will catch them at very very unexpected moments and i agree with you that i think the kubler-ross model is becoming outdated and that perhaps while there is something we can gain from it there's there's a lot more in there the process is a lot less linear than we thought it was and i think that when we when we give people that reality it kind of gives them some freedom in the grief process, because they think, oh my gosh, maybe it's a little more complicated than I thought, and my process will be different than yours. And I think there's some power in that.
1: There is, and there's truth in it. I look people in the eyes when they come to me wondering if they're grieving correctly. Am I okay? Is this normal? The first thing I say to them is, there is no wrong way to grieve. Now, obviously, if someone can't get out of bed and hasn't eaten in you know, two weeks and is clinically Depressed, then, that, of course, then there's some intervention required. But generally speaking, there's no wrong way to grieve, and and who who are we to impose a linear model on something that is a matter of the heart and soul? It's not a matter of the mind. It's a matter of the heart and the soul. Uh, and so, I I think you're exactly right. In, in granting that permission, uh, because the answer to am I normal when it comes to grief is almost always yes.
0: We'll have more of my conversation with Rabbi Steve Leder, Senior Rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. Still to come, Rabbi Leder talks about assisted suicide, end-of-life care, and lessons learned from the pandemic. And as we get close to wrapping up 2020, I just want to thank you, our listeners, once again, for making this show possible. It's been quite a journey this year with Life Examined. We've had Deepak Chopra explain how what we're really feeling right now is grief for the old pandemic-free world. We've explored whether having kids really makes a person happier. And most recently, we looked at how psilocybin therapy could help cure mental disorders. If you found yourself connecting to these shows and these questions, I hope you'll consider a year-end donation to KCRW by heading over to kcrw.com/give. We'll be back with Life Examined on KCRW after this short break.
1: Introducing the KCRW donation car, designed to be recycled.
0: We'll now continue with our conversation with Los Angeles Rabbi Steve Leder. His new book, The Beauty of What Remains, How Our Greatest Fear Becomes Our Greatest Gift, is due out early next year. Well, Rabbi Leader earlier you described grief coming in waves, sometimes slow and gentle, but sometimes big and rough, knocking you down and underwater. And, and I love how you added this imagery of floating with that wave until you're able to stand. In your book, this theme of grief really hits home as you grappled with the death of your father. And in the grief process, you say that you felt the tension of Steve the son versus Steve the rabbi. Can you say a little bit more about this?
1: There were, there were many inflection points. Um, let me start with when I realized that there was a dissonance. And that was the first weekend my father spent in a nursing home, and uh, I flew back to Minneapolis to visit. Went to the nursing home, and for the Jewish residents in the home, it was Friday, late Friday afternoon. And for the Jewish residents in the home, in the home, they put on a kind of brief Shabbat, you know, Sabbath welcome, the Sabbath kind of service. And it was normally done by a Jewish staff member at the home, but they knew I was visiting. They knew who I was, and so they asked me, "Would you, would you please lead?" the little Friday afternoon service for the residents on your father's floor. Of course, I agreed. And then this woman handed me an inflated balloon. And I said, well, what is this for? She said, well, you, you hit it to one of the residents and whoever catches it, uh, that person, it's their turn to engage with you during the service. You can ask them to sing or clap their hands or say their name or whatever it is. It, just, it helps them stay focused and engaged. So I took the balloon with me and I went into the multi-purpose room where there were about 20 people, mostly so hard for me, uh, mostly, you know, listless and confused and, and to see my father and to recognize he actually belonged there at that point was so, you know, so painful. Uh, and, and, but I, I put on my rabbi persona and my, my act, you know, I know how to talk in front of elderly seniors, and I know how to talk in front of three-year-olds, and so I. I and by the way, it's the same shtick on, on both ends of that spectrum. You have to be, you know, uh, you, you you gesture broadly, you have to be loud, you have to be funny, you have to be energetic. So sure. I did all of those things, and and then I and I was hitting the balloon to residents, and I hit the balloon, and my dad caught it, and it. It just broke my heart uh, and, and, and that he was so childlike, and and I I got through it, but after that service, I went out into the hallway, and I just broke into tears. And I'm not a big crier. I, I was I was just destroyed by that experience, and it was at that moment that I realized that my father's impending death was forcing me to reckon with the difference between the rabbi and the son and that I was going to end up as a result of this much more the son than the rabbi and that that's where it really all began and there were so many times when that happened you know shaving my father um, uh, writing my father's eulogy I've, I've written literally, without any rabbinic hyperbole here, probably a thousand eulogies. But none of them were as a son. And so I had this experience of, how am I going to approach this eulogy? Am I going to approach it as the rabbi? Or am I going to approach it as the son? And because it was a 10-year journey from rabbi to son, I knew, I knew the answer to the question was, I am the son here and and the eulogy was purely the words of a son and I'm so grateful that I had made that transition that there was clarity in that decision um, but there were there were and there were many times when I had to go back and forth when medical decisions had to be made uh, when I when I used my rabbi clarity that I've used so many times in, in you know in the ER and and the ICU with a family saying are what we are is what we are contemplating here for him going to prolong his death or is it going to prolong his life? Because if it's going to prolong his death, that's cruel. If it's going to prolong his life, let's let's try it. And, you know, answering that question as the son versus the father, you know, uh, versus the, the rabbi is, is a different experience. So, the whole book is about these these points where these parallel lines intersect and where they remain parallel um and and at the end i would say that i am most grateful for the fact that i was able to be the son.
0: Hmm. i just i i keep hearing this part of you the one that had to write more than a thousand eulogies and this was the time you wrote one as a son, because it's so easy to speak philosophically about death and to think we have the right words, but I feel like there you are thrust into such a deeper level of feeling and emotion into the situation.
1: Yes, and you also know whether or not you're really telling the truth. When I write a eulogy for someone I didn't know or didn't know well, which is often I am relying on the viewpoint of everyone I talk to during what I call the intake process. I sit with families. I sit with the children and the grandchildren and the spouse and, you know, the brothers and sisters. And my job is to relay their perspective, their points of view accurately. And then I know I've done a good job. I don't really know if I'm getting to the essence of that person. I know I'm getting to the essence of other people's views of that person. But when it comes to writing a eulogy for your own father, you know in the deepest part of your being whether or not every single word is the truth. And that's difficult.
0: And in this process, you're making, I know, some very deep and complicated decisions about prolonging life and not prolonging life. And this is a, a profound and very, very difficult issue, which is something you take up in this book. You, you talked about a little bit a minute ago, but can you say more about that journey that's going on at the same time?
1: Well, I think what you're referring to um, is chapter four in the book, uh, which, is, which is about my experience uh, in an assisted suicide. I mean, let's call it what it is, uh, where I really felt the sting of the conflict between rabbi and, for lack of a better way to put it, human being. Not that rabbis aren't human, but they're bound to a certain set of beliefs and practices. Which are not always consistent with their own personal beliefs. I mean, it might be it. It would be nice to say, "Oh, we're completely aligned." You know, there's no lack of alignment between me and and what a rabbi is uh, supposed to represent. But this was one of those moments where there was a a very clear conflict. So just to help all the listeners get on the page with us, uh, I was called to the bedside of a woman who had ALS and was really suffering, had lost her ability to speak, couldn't really move much, um, had, had from an outsider's perspective, almost no quality of life. And before she lost her ability to speak, she told her husband uh, that when she gave him a certain sign, she wanted him to reach out to me and have me come and uh, grant her permission to take the medication, which is legal in California after going through an appropriate process, to end her life, and the call came, and I went to her bedside and assessed things. We couldn't really have a conversation about it, Um, but here I was in this conflict where Jewish law and tradition is, you know, categorically opposed to uh, active euthanasia. It allows passive euthanasia, but it is categorically opposed. Uh, and, and to be an assistant in that is to be an accomplice to murder. The tradition's very clear. Wow. And yet here was this poor woman who I'd known for 30 years and, you know, knew her children, knew her family, and her husband saying to me, she wants to know if she can take the medication, yes or no. She won't do it unless you say it's okay. So there I was. And what I had to figure out was, in my heart, I call her Tara in the book. Was Tara asking Steve Leader the rabbi, this question? Or was she asking Steve Leader the man, this question? And she couldn't answer that for me. I had to answer that for myself. And... I, I stepped out of the room with her daughter and her husband, and I said, uh, I'm going to go in there and tell her it's okay to take the medication, because I can't live with the fact that I would treat my dog more humanely than your wife and your mother right now. And I went back in, and I said, Tara, you should, you should take the medication. You have my blessing. And uh, after a few more minutes, then I got into my car and I went home. About two hours later, the phone rang. And it was her husband saying, Tara's gone. Thank you. Thank you. And as I put it in the book, he thought he was calling to thank Rabbi Leader, But it was Steve Leder who answered the phone.
0: That is a it is a very, very moving story. How was that for you? Just sorting through those questions. I mean...
1: Well, it's... Uh, you know, sometimes we have these cliches and we don't fully appreciate the meaning of the words. And soul-searching is a cliche that I think lacks our full appreciation for the words. I really had to search my soul. And... Death forces us to do that in such powerful ways, not, not just if you're a rabbi, all of us. It forces all of us to really search our souls. In my view, death is really the great teacher of life. I imagine a deathless life. Imagine a world without death, how little we would care, how little we would know, how little we would accomplish. Uh, Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> so, But but for me, maybe this will help. I was many years ago in a study group with rabbis from every denomination of Judaism, Orthodox, conservative, reform, and Reconstructionist. So for, for the listeners who may not be aware, Judaism has denominations just like Christianity. And the Orthodox uh, denomination is the most fundamentalist or literalist. Uh, kind of full of literalists and and the most religiously conservative and often politically conservative. And I was ordained at the Reform Movement Seminary, which is sort of the least fundamentalist uh, and, uh, you know, least willing to grant Jewish law a veto. It gets a vote, but not a veto. And so we were in the study group together. And after a few months, the Orthodox rabbi said to me, Steve, I have figured out what's different about the two of us. And I said, what is it? He said, when someone comes to me with a problem, I first look in the text, then I look in their eyes, and I find the answer I think they need. When someone comes to you with a problem, you first look in their eyes, and then you look in the text and find the answer you believe they need. And I think there was a lot of truth to that. And what he was saying was, I privilege my human experience over the restrictions of Jewish law. And I think he's right. And that was certainly true in that cheerless bedroom by Tara's bedside.
0: Hmm. There's something in in that lesson though. It's it's if the humanity or something essential in us overrides overrides the teachings or the structure or or something in that, which I is easy for me to understand as as a person who's who's not a rabbi, but much different as someone who's devoted their life to a tradition.
1: You know, I think of it almost like becoming an accomplished artist and knowing exactly which color, how much, how much texture, you know, in other words, what to choose from the palette of tradition to make life more meaningful and more beautiful, and what not to choose. Right? Or again back to this idea of how not to behave. You know as a as a grief counselor what you don't say is no less important than what you do say. So it, it really becomes an art. I think of my role as a rabbi and I think of religion much more like art than, than science. Hmm. Uh, and, and maybe that's a helpful way to think about it. But I will tell you, I struggled with putting that chapter in the book because I know what the world reaction will be in the religious community and it's not going to be favorable. So I really struggled with that chapter. But the whole book is a mission to really tell the truth about death and therefore to reveal these fundamentally crucial understandings about life.
0: If we bring this conversation back to this amazing moment in time where we are now thinking of the amount of loss, I wonder... How do you distill some of these, these teachings, these, these journeys into advice for those that feel unprepared for death, feel unprepared for grief?
1: Yeah. So generally speaking, the fundamentals apply. Uh, count your blessings. Count your blessings, even in the darkness, because there are many. And it's very hard to be depressed if you're grateful. So this was an opportunity to count our blessings. This was an opportunity to help other people who are suffering. You know, there's a there's a great Chinese proverb I, I often like to quote. If you want to be happy for an hour, take a nap. If you want to be happy for a day, go fishing. If you want to be happy for a month, get married. If you want to be happy for a year, inherit a fortune. If you want to be happy for your lifetime, help another person. Mm. What an opportunity this has been for that. Uh, And also to remind people of uh, of a few fundamental truths I've learned just from being around so much suffering. First of all, time flies even when you're not having fun. We do get through these things. Secondly, while this is different, it's not the first difficult thing any of us have gone through if we're adults. We've all gone through things that we thought at the beginning of the journey could really destroy us, yet here we are. Uh, there's an old Yiddish expression which says, when you must, you can, and it's really true. So, you know, reminding people of these things is really important. Now, more specifically, when we're talking about people directly affected by this terrible loss, it, it is a loss due to COVID, which feels so capricious. But the grief in the morning, frankly, is very similar to other sorts of capricious losses. You know, cells gone mad in a tumor, uh, a car accident, a fall. So most of us do have some emotional, spiritual frame of reference for what we're going through. Uh, And, of course, the ancients certainly did. Uh, You know, if if you want to know about living with anxiety... Just put yourself back a couple thousand years in the calendar where, where death loomed around every corner. You, people had no reason not to believe they wouldn't die from a plague or from some other you know calamity uh, from from murder, from uh, you know mugging. Uh, most children you know a thousand years ago, fifty percent of all children didn't live to see their fifth birthday. Uh, a thousand years ago, here's some good news: there was no midlife crisis because guess what? There was no midlife. <laughs> you know, you were a child till you were 12 or 13, then you got married, had your own family, and by the time you were in your 30s or 40s, you were toothless and dead. So, you know, we are not the first. There was a great piece by C.S. Lewis about living in the age of the atomic bomb. A great piece, uh, where he said, you know, this is one more threat to life of many. So let us continue on doing the things that give us meaning, that bring value to life, love and play and laughter and friendship. Uh, Let us be caught doing that if the moment arrives. So, you know, we're not the first, and and we can take some comfort in that.
0: I think that is so true. And I I wonder... What scripture you look back upon that gives you this sense of, of optimism, too, as we begin to emerge? yeah,
1: That verse, that verse in the, psal- in the 23rd Psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Let me make two observations about that verse that I think are very deep and very profound, and an answer to your question. The first is the poet's promise that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't stay there forever. We do find a way forward, all of us. We cannot die because loved ones die. We do find a way. But the second and even more nuanced understanding of that verse is the whole metaphor of a valley of shadows. If you think deeply about a shadow, you will realize that no matter how long or how dark it is actually proof of light. You cannot have a shadow unless the light is still shining. Mm. Right. Without light shining, it's total darkness. There are no shadows. So in the metaphor, obviously, the light is obstructed by, by mountains on either side of a valley. But right now, the, the light is obstructed by death and by disease and by anxiety and, and, and by this pandemic. But let's remember. That all of that is a reflection of our love of life, our love for each other, our, our, our love for this planet. And, and that is all still there. Grief is a reflection, no matter how long and how dark, it is a reflection of love.
0: Hmm.
1: We only grieve the loss of that which we love. And so this psalm says to me, it's all still there for us. Just keep going, keep going, keep going. Hmm. That's faith.
0: As we think now about entering 2021, I, I love so much of what you just said, and I, I think what is this possibility of taking this theme we're talking about and your book, "The Beauty of What Remains," and 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 bringing it with us? I also in the year that we've made it through this election, we have a vaccine around the corner. What are you looking at practically as signs of hope right now?
1: Let me go back to Jewish tradition for a moment. On our new year, which happens in the fall, the the greeting we offer to each other is Shana Tova, which means a good year. Now, people always translate it as Happy New Year, but that's not what it means. It means a good year. I don't wish people Happy New Year. I wish people a meaningful new year, a love-filled new year, a good new year. One of this, one of the things I hope this pandemic has taught us is that good is really great. Mm. And that a little is a lot. There's so much wisdom in that notion. A little is a lot and good is really, really great. And so I'm hopeful for a good new year, not a happy new year, by the way, I've always felt that we each have our own default happiness setting. And whatever happens to us changes it very little for, for a very brief time. People are who we are. We are who we are. But we can So I don't think we can always you know, control how happy we are. But we can control how good we are, without a doubt. And so one of the ways of holding on to the lessons, the essentialism, um, the purity and clarity that the pandemic brought to so many of us is to think about goodness rather than happiness Mm. and to think about gratitude rather rather than entitlement and to think in the coming year about how we can be better not just better off and then then we will not have come out of this hell empty-handed if you have to go through hell don't come out empty-handed that's my wish for everyone in the new year don't come out of this hell empty-handed. Take what you have learned and use it to make your life more meaningful and more beautiful. Yeah.
0: I kept thinking about this word as you were talking that, that there's almost this recalibration that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Right? Which is that we have been forced to go to those essentials to value the relationship on a much more fundamental level and that's almost at the essence of what we bring with us, things of that nature that we can build upon.
1: That is all we have. The rest is nonsense. Nonsense. You know, there's a chapter chapter in the book, which is uh, the title of the chapter is the answer to a question I asked a friend of mine after her mother died a few years ago. I asked her, I said, I said, what did you learn? And she answered, I'll tell you what I learned. Nobody wants your crap. Mm. And what she meant was, so I called the chapter, <laughs> Nobody Wants Your Crap. Um, what she meant was that all the stuff we spend our lives pursuing means little or nothing, really. As I said before, one of the things hopefully the pandemic has taught us is that it's who, not what, we have that really matters. Mm-hmm. And, and if that is something we can all hold on to, we are definitely going to lead better lives. More fulfilling, more meaningful, more beautiful, as I said before. Uh, and, and that will be the upside of this terrible, terrible downside.
0: Well, as we as we begin to wrap this this wonderful conversation up, I I wonder if there's anything else that you would want to share about your journey in this year, in this book, in the merging of son and rabbi that that you'd like to leave us with as we as we all begin this uh this new cycle together.
1: I think to put it pretty simply, Death reveals the depths of our love. And that is at times very painful, but mostly incredibly beautiful.
0: Well, Rabbi Steve Leader, this has been a, a very moving and wonderful and touching conversation. And I, I can't think of a better one to have as we finish this year and move into another. So we we deeply appreciate your time and your, your words today. Thank you.
1: You are so welcome. I'm very grateful to you for this opportunity.
0: Rabbi Steve Leder is senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. And he's the author of the new book, The Beauty of What Remains, How Our Greatest Fear Becomes Our Greatest Gift which is due out on January 5th. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastian at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.